I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy pediatric practitioner. If you're a practitioner, click on the link in the text of this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, I'm coming to you from the Neonatology Fellowship Conference in downtown San Antonio. I'm going to bring you a fascinating talk by Dr. J.B. Canty. He is an assistant professor of pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio. Dr. Canty is double-boarded in neonatology and infectious disease. He has a master's in public health, and he's a contributing writer to Red Book. His talk, Antibiotics, Stewardship, Part 1, Within the Nursery, How to Do It, and Why It Matters. Thank you. I, it's really an honor to be here. I, I don't know when the last time I had an opportunity to have this much talent trapped for an hour. So uh, it was really, really um, hard for me to cut. So this is uh, this is a longer talk than I normally would give. I have a lot of rules about presentation that I teach our, our residents and our medical students, and I'm about to break a lot of them. So I'm going to apologize in advance. So this is more than you ever wanted to know about antimicrobial stewardship. Um, the delay was just my master plan to let the wine flow a little bit longer so that my jokes hit a little bit harder. <laughs> so. Okay, so it's going to come as no surprise to anyone in this room that antibiotics are among the most prescribed medications in the NICU. And this is study is an oldie but a goodie out of the Mednax database. So this is Reese Clark and company almost 20 years ago now, which is terrifying to me. And they looked at all of the infants in their Mednax database. So this is over 200,000 infants. And they just looked at, did the infants ever see at least one dose of these medications? And you can see that four of the top eight are antimicrobials. This was 20 years ago. Not much has changed. Okay, so antibiotics are extremely frequently prescribed. This is a, a more recent study by Shulman et al. out of the California peri, uh, Perinatology Group. They looked at over 50,000 neonatal ICU infants. So to, for disclosure, this is level two, three, and four. So these are generally a little bit shorter lengths of stay than our level four NICU babies. And they looked at what's called antimicrobial utilization rate. So this big graph over here is divided up among the different types of NICUs, the level fours, the level threes, what we would call level twos. And you can see that the median AUR, so the median of all those units, was 25%. And that, what that means in, in lay, layman's terms is that if you walk into any one of those nurseries on any given day, any, any baby has about a one in four chance of being on at least one antibiotic that day. It matters um, for a couple of reasons. And I'm going to briefly lay out why it matters and what the biologic plausibility is before we get into what we can do about it. This is the original. So this is Mike Cotton et al. from the Neonatal Research Network. This study was published 15 years ago in pediatrics. And it was a retrospective cohort study of over 4,000 extremely low birth weight babies. There's a lot of slides in this talk. It's not as much as it seems like there's going to be a lot of repeating themes. And this is one of them. So here's a retrospective cohort study of a lot of babies. And what they looked at was infants who received initial empiric antibiotic therapy who had sterile blood cultures. So we're going to take out the babies with proven early onset sepsis. They're gone. They need therapy. Um, all the ones who had sterile cultures, when you look at how much drug they get, over half of the cohort got five or more days of therapy despite sterile cultures. And this is in 2006 to 2008 that this data was being collected. And when they looked at the babies who got five or more days versus the babies who got less, they saw that there was a higher risk of necrotizing enterocolitis neck about 30% higher rate, and there was a higher rate of mortality. 
they were unable to look at exact dosing, the perceived severity of illness, or physician decision-making. Essentially, they were unable to look at why these kids got 5, 10, 15 days. They were only able to look at, at, at again, this is the one of the problems of a retrospective uh, database. And so this was big news. It came out in pediatrics. There was an editorial. If it had been published today, I'm sure there would have been a video tweet to go along with it. But this was a big deal. But everyone immediately said, well, it's an observational study. We're worried about confounding by indication. How do we know that the sickest kids didn't get more therapy because they were sick, and then the sickest kids had the worst outcomes? Maybe it's not the antibiotics. Maybe it's them being sick. So Kapala et al. in Ohio, this is the Ohio State flag, which I learned today, um, did a very similar study. So again, retrospective cohort, very low birth weight babies, a significant chunk of whom got five or more days of therapy. And they tried to, and, and they found the same thing, right? They found an increased risk of late onset sepsis. They found an increased risk of a composite of sepsis, neck, or death. And they tried a little bit harder than the network could. They tried to control for severity of illness by using maternal and infant risk factors. So they looked at choreo. They looked at prematurity. They looked at whether the babies were on a ventilator, and if so, for how long. They looked at five-minute after scores. And they found these things. And so they tried to control for that confounding by indication. People still say, eh, well, you know, okay, that's, but it's a small study. No association between length of initial therapy and severity of illness, which is a point we'll come back to. So then another small group in Dallas uh, got together and did uh, another small retrospective cohort study. Again, small, uh, very low birth weight infants, sterile blood cultures. And that group, <coughs> me, um, we used the CRIB2 crib score. So the CRIB2 score is a validated pain in the butt marker of mortality that takes into account gestational age, birth weight, sex, and initial base deficit and initial temperature on admission to the NICU. So all those golden hour warming efforts you do really do affect mortality. And what we found was not only an, an association between sepsis, neck, and death with antibiotics, but we were able to drill down quantitatively and look at each day. So ours wasn't five or more days versus less. Ours was each day. And what we were able to show was that each day raised your risk of that sepsis, neck, or death composite by about 24% which means if you give four or five days of therapy, you've essentially doubled that baby's risk of infection. Again, not perfect, observational, but the CRIB2 score. We, in a slightly larger database, when I was at Temple, we did a very similar study, and this time we looked specifically at bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and what we found was that each additional day of antibiotics increased your risk for BPD as a categorical variable, and it increased your severity level, so more likely to be moderate than mild, more likely to be severe than moderate, using the, the uh, old NIH definitions. And people said, okay, that's great, Kapala, that's great, Canty, but these are small, single-center, retrospective studies. And then Joseph Ting came over the hill like the ride of the Rohirrim to my rescue with the entire nation of Canada in the Canadian Neonatal Network. So he had 14,000 very low birth weight babies, and he used the SNAP2 score. SNAP2 is essentially CRIB2 with some more hour-to-hour -hour data, things like urine output. But he controlled for severity of illness very well. And what he found, surprise, surprise, was each additional antibiotic day was associated with an increased risk of death or major morbidity. And they defined it as neurodevelopmental impairment, ROP, neck, BPD, or sepsis. So they had a very heterogeneous definition. And what they found is that each day increased your risk by about 5% after pretty rigorous controlling for severity of illness. China did the same thing. This just came out a few months ago. It was actually presented by one of our residents at Journal Club uh, just a few weeks ago, and she did a great job with it. So this is 20,000 infants born preterm in China, 85% um, of whom got early antibiotics, which is a lot. And they found that early antibiotics were associated with BPD. But interestingly, they also were the first, I believe, to show that increased early antibiotics 
increase your risk of seeing antibiotics later in your NICU stays. You're about five times more likely, if you're one of those 85%, which is most babies, you're about five times more likely to see therapy again than that 15% that didn't get therapy. And each day of early antibiotics increases the amount of antibiotics you're gonna see later on. Again, with some relatively crude controlling for severity of illness. So where we are today, oh sorry, one more slide. There are a lot of other uh, associated effects that, that we could, each one of these could be a talk in and of themselves. Increased risk for Canada, Lisa Saman uh, from Columbia, New York, Mike Cotton again. Increased risk for colonization with or infection from multi-drug resistant organisms, surprise, surprise. More recently, even in full-term babies, the concept of atopic disease, of asthma, eczema, food allergies, obesity, um, to tie it into the overarching theme of this weekend, um, have all been shown with early antibiotic exposure, and that data continues to grow. Where we are now with observational study is pretty much that if you're a believer, like I am, you probably believe. And if you're not a believer because of this concern for confounding by indication, you're probably never gonna believe with observational data, right? We have the best and biggest observational data that we're ever gonna get. So the time for additional observation data is, is, is done. It's time now to do a randomized controlled trial. So um, this was an editorial I wrote for that Shulman study, and now we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're, technically, we're putting your money where our mouth is, uh, and we're doing an NIH-funded uh, trial called the NANO trial, which is centered at the University of Pittsburgh, where we're actually taking well-appearing micropremies and randomizing them to Ampingent versus placebo. That study just enrolled its 200th patient this week. Uh, we'll hopefully have data for you sometime in the next four or years. But it's coming. <laughs> okay. One more brief talk before we go into the biologic plausibility is we, don't throw anything at me, please, because I'm including myself in this, but we as NEOs are not great at identifying babies with sepsis. We're very good at identifying babies who don't have sepsis, but we're not great at identifying babies who do. So this is a study from Cordero et al. This is a great study. This is the sick end of the bell curve, right? So 800 extremely low birth weight babies who all got initial antimicrobial therapy despite having sterile blood culture. So that same group that we've been showing you over and over and over again. And what these investigators looked at is maternal and infant risk factors. So all the risk factors for early onset sepsis, all the plausible things like hypotension and respiratory distress in the babies. And what they found was that the number of risk factors and the number of clinical signs in no way correlated with how much therapy these babies got. Right? So babies with no risk factors got just as much therapy as babies with a ton of risk factors and vice versa. If you go to the other end of, the, of that bell curve and you go to the biggest, healthiest kids you possibly can, and this is again in the MedMax database, this is a thousand term AGA neonates who were treated for suspected early onset sepsis. And but to qualify for this cohort, at 24 hours you had to be on room air, normal vital signs, and full PO ad-lib feeds. Right? So full term PO ad-lib feeds, 24 hours, room air, healthy. And what they looked at was how many risk factors for early onset sepsis. Think of all those things you guys plug into the Kaiser sepsis calculator over and over and over again. The babies with zero risk factors average 3.3 days of antibiotics, and the babies with two or more average 3.5, not statistically different. 20% of infants who met these criteria, 20% of those babies got five or more days of therapy. Right? 24% of infants who met these criteria but had risk factors got five or more days of therapy. Again, no difference. So we don't always use objective risk assessments in our clinical practice. I think the Kaiser sepsis calculator has changed that. I think people are much more comfortable plugging in numbers and, and taking a look at the baby than we used to be. But historically, NEOs have not been good at identifying babies who are at risk for sepsis. Okay. 
Part of that is, and I, I give this talk to, to every month, and, and our NICU is that sepsis looks like everything, and everything looks like sepsis. And so it's very challenging to, to look at a baby who's got respiratory distress or hypoglycemia or temperature instability and be like, they're fine, right? So apnea, respiratory distress, hypotension are all logarithmically more common than infection is. Respiratory distress syndrome, TTM, meconium aspiration, atelectasis, pneumothorax, all these causes are logarithmically more common than sepsis. But we are still obligated to treat them all like sepsis because we don't have a good alternative right now. We're going to talk about that in, in a few slides. The California perinatal group put these numbers out um, a few years ago, and I think they're good numbers, but the number needed to test for early onset sepsis in the state of California across all those level two, level three, level four NICUs is about 95. We do about 95 early onset sepsis workups, blood cultures, antimicrobial therapy for every one positive culture. For late onset sepsis, we're a little bit better. The number needed to test is only 20, and I, I argue that's because we just know those babies better. We have a baseline, and we know what bay they're in, and we know their families. Um, but it's still not great, right? If, if the oncologist had a number needed to test of 20 for ALL, they would sue everyone into oblivion, right? So we're not great at identifying it because everything looks like sepsis and sepsis looks like everything. This leads to what I, I copyright pending, I call the Spartacus problem. It's really hard to distinguish these babies, but the decision to treat is obligate on us because we don't have a timely way to say this kid definitely doesn't have sepsis. And so I call it the Spartacus, I don't know if there's any Kirk Douglas fans in the room or if I'm, I'm the oldest one here, but there's, those of you who have not seen Spartacus, this is your homework after the conference is over, but there's a scene when Spartacus, this guy, um, is, he's leading the slave rebellion in, in Greece and the Romans catch up to him and they're coming to hang him and they say, okay, everyone else can go, we want to hang Spartacus, but they have no idea what Spartacus looks like. And so they're like, Spartacus, stand up. And one of his lieutenants stands up and goes, I'm Spartacus. And one of the other ones stands up and goes, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. And everyone stands up and says, I am Spartacus, so that the Roman centurions can't tell which one is Spartacus. And what do the Romans do? They do exactly what we do to all these babies. They, they treated them all. <laughs> they crucified all of them. Right? So this is, this is the problem. We don't have a good way to know which of our babies actually has sepsis right now. Okay, the biologic plausibility. This is a much easier sell now than it was 10 years ago, right? This is the part of the talk where I used to get rotten tomatoes thrown at me, and now everyone's like, yeah, of course, this is standard. We get this in first-year medical school, right? So the microbiome that our babies are literally born with is crucially important, and it lives in their gut, it lives in their lungs, it lives on their skin. I'm sure we'll find other places that it wouldn't surprise me if we have a pleural fluid microbiome or if we have a, a, a neurologic microbiome. I always liken it to a coral reef. It's this complex interaction, a very delicate ecosystem of a lot of different species that all live together, and they live together in pretty good balance. It all happens uh, in utero. It happens at the time of delivery. It happens postnatally. I'm not going to go through this slide because you guys know this, right? Mode of delivery, breast milk versus formula, skin-to-skin uh, -skin care, kangaroo care, all of these things positively impact uh, the microbiome. And what we're looking for is number of bacteria and diversity of bacteria. Diversity is good, right? Diversity is good in our society. Diversity is good in our microbiomes. Antibiotics disrupt that diversity and disrupt that microbiome, and they do it in a hurry. So this is um, this is an animal model, actually. But the same thing happens in babies. But even after a single dose of antimicrobial therapy, you can see the diversity on the y-axis here, the alpha diversity just plummets within a few days, half a day, full day, 48 hours. And then it slowly starts to recover. But you can see by two weeks in this animal model, after one dose of streptomycin, the diversity is still a fraction of what it was at birth. We see this in the lung microbiome. We see this in the cutaneous microbiome as well. 
This is a clinical study from Greenwood et al. at Yale. Uh, this is 74 infants with serial stool samples being collected. Sorry to talk about this right when you're in the middle of your entree. Um, and what they did is they stratified infants based on whether they got no antibiotics, four days or less, or five days or more in the first week of life. And you can see that in the first week, the diversity is kind of all over the place, really wide confidence intervals for diversity. But as it becomes week two and then it becomes week three, you can see that the babies with no antibiotics have very, very high diversity index. And the babies with uh, a rule out are a little bit lower and the babies who got prolonged therapy are really, really low in their diversity index. So this, is a, this was, I think, the first clinical study to come out showing that not only was there less diversity, but what was there was more the bad stuff, the proteobacteria, the E. coli's, the Klebsiella's, the Enterobacters of the world, not the Lactobacillus and the Bifidobacterium and all the good stuff we're supposed to inherit from our moms and dads. Uh, this was Rooney et al. This was a few years later. They did 16 sRNA sampling of stool swabs for babies after they completed antimicrobial therapy. And most of this was early onset. Most of this was Ampengent, just good old bread and butter Ampengent that we use all the time. And what they found, common theme, is that each additional day of antibiotics impacted the richness and diversity of those babies' stool flora in a significant way. This is a similar study from pediatric research uh, in 2014 where they looked at the lung. So they looked at diversity and, and abundance of bacteria in the lung microbiome for samples that were collected on days one, th whoops, sorry, one, three, uh, one, three, seven, and 28. And what they found was that the less diversity you have, even on day one, the more likely you were to develop bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And the concept obviously being that your normal lung microbiome is presumably anti-inflammatory, and if you get rid of that, you've significantly tilted the seesaw back towards inflammation, and that's not good for anybody. Similarly, the more in your lung that is proteobacteria, so think of the, the, the nasty gram negatives that we don't want, E. coli, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, Enterobacter, Stenotrophomonas multifilia, all that stuff that we get out of trach aspirates all the time. It's not supposed to be in there and it's inflammatory. So that antibiotic can very easily disrupt the normal healthy microbiome and leave you with this, and then what tends to repopulate the stuff you don't want there is, is, is pathogens. Resistance is a problem too. This is that same study, um, it is a mouse model. This is a single dose of streptomycin uh, from cell and host microbes in 2019. And you can see logarithmically how many, this is just abundance of stool in the, in the poop, and after a single dose of streptomycin, within 12 hours, you've lost literally million-fold bacteria. But while you're still being treated, these, these mice got four days of antimicrobial therapy. While they're still being treated, here come the anaerobes. And then a little bit later, here come the aerobes back up on streptomycin therapy. Guess what all of these bacteria are now? Resistant to streptomycin, resistant to gentamicin, resistant to amicacin and tobramycin. So that selective pressure is immediate and it's fast. This is a, a clinical study. It's one of my favorite studies ever. If I ever get over the Netherlands and I remember, I'm going to find this guy. Um, this was Demand et al. in the Lancet 2000. This is two NICUs in Amsterdam. This unit used ampis, uh, sorry, amoxicillin and cefetax. So think ampicillin and cefetax. This unit used penicillin and tobramycin. So for all intents and purposes, amp and cefetax, amp and gent. And they went for six months, and every one of these circles is antimicrobial resistance to the regimen you're using. So white is resistant to the white regimen, gray is resistant to the gray regimen. And you can see there's a little bit of resistance to what's not being used, but not much. A lot of resistance, especially the cefotaxime. And then at the six-month period, they crossed over with a one-month washout, and look how quickly the resistance goes away to the white and appears for the gray. The resistance flips within a matter of weeks in the unit. So your local ecology is strongly driven by these antibiotics. Okay, 
so again, hopefully that was rehashed for most everybody. Um, I, I know I'm throwing a lot of different references at you real fast. I'm happy to send this to anyone who wants it. Um, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of references. So what can we do about it? How do we safely use less? And I, and I will say it once, um, but I'm happy to repeat it again. Antimicrobial stewardship is not about getting to zero. Okay, if we get to zero, all of our babies are going to die. Right? Our job is not to get to some theoretical asymptotic line close to zero. We are not the antibiotic police. Um, we are the antibiotic sommeliers. We're trying to pair the right antibiotic with the right clinical situation. We don't want no use because babies will suffer. We don't want misuse. Okay? So that being said, how do we safely use less and make sure that what we are using is the right ones in our population? And the answer is, I got seven hours, ten hours. I don't. I think you guys would, would all go jump in the in the room. I would not get in that water. But <laughs> you know, people would be like bailing out of the window if I talked about it. But I'm going to pick my four favorite topics and go really quickly through each of them so that we have time for questions at the end if there are any. But it is a huge buffet, and you can pick a million different things and affect positive change from a stewardship standpoint. Um, Michelangelo's old quote that gets butchered all the time on the internet is usually what I stick in here if I wasn't trying to keep my slides down, where yeah, you, 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 you take the block of marble and you carve until you set the angel free. right? You cut away everything that's bad use, and what you're left with is proper use of antimicrobials. So just chisel. So I'm going to talk about biomarkers, narrow spectrum agents, shorter durations, and avoiding culture negative sepsis, which you must, must, must put in air quotes if I'm in your line of sight. Okay, biomarkers. This is where we're headed. Residents, fellows, junior faculty, anyone with a biomedical engineering background, please work on this and then invite me on your yacht when you're rich. <laughs> um, biomarkers is what we need. we need. We need reliable biomarkers. If we had a fast, accurate test that would stop us from using antibiotics in the first place, that is the holy grail, and I will have to go do something else. I'll have to go turn my attention to CMV or hepatitis C or something, because antimicrobial stewardship will be taken care of. Okay. Jordan Hendrick Lightcamp, uh, I think at Ohio State now, um, in Clinical Infectious Diseases, wrote a wonderful editorial that I recommend um, where he said, what do we need? What does the ideal biomarker have? And basically what we need is high enough negative predictive value where we can forego the need for antibiotics while maintaining a good enough positive predictive value so that every time the biomarker is abnormal, we're not having to treat these kids. And we need it to be low blood volume and we need it to be fast. Okay? So keep those in mind as we go through. There is no test right now that meets this criteria. Okay, so I'm not, no trick at the end. We don't have this test yet. <laughs> yeah. Right, this is what everyone thinks about. This is what we currently have for biomarkers. <laughs> so, so here's the original one, right? Infectious disease doctor. We always start back at the beginning of recorded history, right? So I only went back to the 60s. This is pretty good, pretty good for me. The original was the CBC, and this is from uh, Archives of Internal Medicine, so this isn't even neontology, but this is in, uh, 60, 55 years ago. Um, we have been impressed that the vacuolization of the cytoplasm in particular, da 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 da, may lead to the diagnosis of sepsis prior to bacteriologic confirmation. And that's the dream, right? You need it to be fast and you need it to be right. The problem is it's not that good. So this is uh, Mich uh, Michel Mikhail, who was a fellow at UT Southwestern about 10 years ago, and now he, he practices out in California. Um, this is a large, real cohort from Parkland Hospital. And what he found was that the sensitivity and specificity of the IT ratio for the CBC is about 65 to 70%. Very common theme for all these biomarkers, 60 to 70% sensitivity and specificity. Well, the problem is sepsis is super rare. So here's nine sepsis cases, early onset sepsis out of 2,000 babies. That's about four and a half per thousand live births. That's a lot, right? That's 10 times the normal population. This is a high risk population. But 
even then the incidence is so low that look at your positive predictive value with that specificity of 69%. You only have 1.4. All these positive tests, only six of the 640 actually have sepsis. The negative predictive value is quite good, but the negative predictive value of everything is good when sepsis is super rare. And I, I wrote an article once where I compared it to a quarter, like a normal flipped quarter. It actually has really good negative predictive value because sepsis is pretty rare. So CBC is not it. This is a much larger study, again, from the MedNAX database that came out in the Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal 10 years ago, 160 plus thousand infants with suspected early onset sepsis all across the country. And they looked at everything. They looked at total white blood cell count, neutrophil count, image I to T ratio, all that. The most sensitivity that they could come up with was an I to T ratio of 20%, so 0.2 or higher, right? 5% bands, 20% neutrophils, 20%, that's a 20% I to T ratio. Even then, the sensitivity was crummy, 55%. And most infants with culture-proven early onset sepsis had normal CBCs. So CBC's not it, guys. And, he, and, and Mednac said it too. Don't, uh, obtaining a CBC solely for the purpose of ruling out early onset sepsis is not supported by the data. Often with early onset sepsis, we do it anyway. We need to see those platelets for the first time. We may want to see what the initial matter is. We get, I know I'm not going to like vanquish CBCs tonight, but just be aware that the CBCs are not useful for the diagnosis of sepsis. So then we all turned our attention to C-reactive protein. This is uh, Brown et al. in JAMA Pediatrics from a few years ago. She meta-analyzed, she's actually a coxswain in England. She's the one of the little people who steers the, no, I shouldn't say that. She's a, a short athlete who used to scream at me when I was rowing. Um, so she's, she's the right person for this. Uh, 2,200 infants um, in 22 different studies. And what they found when they put all these studies together is that the, at the median specificity of 74%, the sensitivity of CRP is 62%. So again, 60s and 70s, 60s and 70s. It's just not good enough. To really be an effective test, you need to be up here in this 80% box, 80% specificity, 80% sensitivity. None of them, none of the studies showed that. So CRP is just not good enough. Determination of CRP and initial evaluation for late onset sepsis is unlikely to aid diagnosis. Okay, procalcitonin, on to the next. The Neopens trial, this was, a, this was a, a randomized control trial. They were randomized to either standard of care, which means do what you want, Neos, or procalcitonins at 12, 24, and one more between 36 and 72 hours, so three procalcitonin levels. Well, guess what? At 12 and 24 hours, the area under the curve for procal stinks. So 12 and 24 hours, it's useless. The good news is between 36 and 72 hours, the AUC actually does nudge up into kind of the useful range, right? It gets up to about 0.92, up in that box that we just highlighted. The problem is by 36 hours, your culture is back. So it doesn't, it's not fast enough. It doesn't beat your reference standard. So procalcitonin's not it either. And the other problem with the study is they were waiting for this third one. So look how long they were treating in this group. In this study, most of us have moved to 24 to 36, maybe 48 hours for early onset sepsis. Most, most unit centers are doing that. Their average was 55 and 65. So they're waiting on that third test. So this, this study actually probably prolonged therapy in these babies and still got into the Lancet, but I'm not bitter. Um, IL-6. Uh, IL-6 has had its time in the sun. Sensitivity, 75, 80. 76, 79, right? IL-6 isn't it either. We actually contributed to, to Roche's new IL-6 study. That I'm very curious to see what they're going to show, but I know they're having to go back in and audit some of our, uh, some of all the center's charts because they didn't have enough culture-proven sepsis. They're going to go back and do culture-negative sepsis, and I threw them. Yeah. All right. Um, and then all these others, right? All these others have gotten looked at. Nothing works yet. Nothing wants it. But wait. 
there are some things that show promise, right, that aren't, that I'm not quite so doom and gloom about. And most of these are non-invasive. This is another really cool thing for all you, for you guys who are looking for something to make a ton of, I mean, study and help babies with. <laughs> University of Virginia, go who's, has long used uh, abnormal heart rate characteristics. The maternal fetal medicine docs use this all the time, right? Category one strips are predictive. Why can't we get category one strips in our babies? Well, it turns out maybe we can. So here is, um, an algorithm-based odds ratio. So what's displayed on the monitor is an odds ratio for sepsis based on beat-to-beat -beat variability, accelerations, things like that, in postnatal premature infants. And you can see that the odds ratio is bouncing around one, and then a few days before the baby clinically gets sick, the odds ratio shoots up, and here's where the baby deteriorated. The odds ratio starts to spike, and here's where the baby deteriorated. This is the original case report. They've gone on now to make it much more user-friendly and much more graphical. This is the HERO system, and they've shown that it actually may reduce mortality to have babies on this. You can see the odds ratio is bouncing around one, and all of a sudden starts to tick up, and maybe the baby starts to have an event or two, and normally we blow it off, but here comes the odds ratio. So maybe we can work these babies up a little sooner. The Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam is the first one to do a large prospective crossover trial, and what they found, I shouldn't say a crossover, time series analysis, so they stepped units in. And what they found was that compared to standard of care, when they moved into the heart rate monitoring era, they actually saw a, I'm going to use this word, I'm breaking one of my rules, a trend towards decreased mortality. They went from about 10% mortality in the group that they were studying down to about 7%. And they were actually able to save a little bit of therapy, 10.5 days of therapy per 1,000 patient days. That's not bad. So the average NICU is about 250 to 400. So 10, 10 days of therapy is a you know, 1 to 4% reduction for something that's non-invasive. So not, not terrible. So heart rate monitoring. Microbiome monitoring, right? The ability to take infants and study their poop to anticipate what's going to happen to them. This was a case control study that Joseph New did with uh, his former fellows, now faculty. And they did a case control of nine infants with neck and nine controls. And they looked at the poop before neck. They looked at the stool samples before neck. And they saw this proteobacteria surge in a few days before the onset of clinical neck. This sudden loss of diversity, this sudden surge of E. coli or Klebsiella. Right? We're having, um, we've had some unfortunate cases recently. We've seen some Klebsiella and E. coli. So uh, that, that surge happens in the microbiome before it happens in the gut wall or in the bloodstream. They've then taken this prospectively um, and following forward, looking at infants doing their, uh, their mouth microbiome, their cutaneous microbiome, their stool microbiome, thousands of samples on these 85 babies, and they create a, a, a daily fingerprint. And they're able to see what drives changes, and it's all the things you think it would be, right? What are the babies eating? Are they breastfeeding? How old are they? Have they been exposed to antibiotics? And if you take that data, and, and here i got to call on Dr. Moreira to help me, if you take that data and feed it back in sequentially to a machine learning tool, you can actually get an increasingly accurate scale that looks at their dynamic risk score for neck. And if the, if the, if the stool microbiome surges on that proteobacteria, this, this risk score will flag red and say, whoa, something just changed. Watch out for this kid in the next 24, 48, 72 hours coming soon to a unit near you as, someone, as soon as someone commercializes it. The sensitivity and specificity of this machine learning tool in those 85 babies is really good, 90-ish okay, 90, percent, and again, non-invasive. Okay, stool, urine, skin, stuff that's going in the trash can anyway. Okay. Transcutaneous monitoring. Okay, we've we've all we've long known, and the, the MICU uses this, that changes in your PaO2, changes in your in your um, carbon dioxide, are markers of sepsis. Right, as your metabolism starts to shift, as you tip over into sepsis, you can detect that. 
Well, transcutaneous capnography is increasingly clinical available. I know we've all struggled with end-tidal CO2 tubes. I certainly have. I'm assuming you guys have too. What if we were able to have pulse ox on this finger and a capnographer on this finger and measure the PO2 and PCO2 transcutaneously? Well, that day is getting closer and closer, says the guy who failed chemistry and engineering in college. But I'm told by smart people that it's getting closer and closer. Okay. All right. Um, last one, some of those sepsis markers that we looked at, so lipopolysaccharide, serum amyloid A, some of those things I said, eh, they're not really there yet. But what if we could measure them transcutaneously? Here's a group that in the International Journal of Macromolecules, which I totally have sitting by my bed and I read it every night before I go to bed, but there are um, groups that are starting to use different probes to be able to measure this stuff transcutaneously. So if we do find a biomarker that works, we may not have to poke the babies for it every time. So biomarkers is a really, really cool um, field. So if we go back and revisit those things that, that White Camp asked for, um, what if we could add non-invasive to that? That would be really cool. So one day we might live in a world where you do this, right? On admission, you put the SeptaCheck probe on the baby's right hand, and SeptaCheck is a continuous non-invasive sensor that looks for heart rate, tissue oxygenation, and circulating bacterial metabolic products. It is 99.3% sensitive, and it's 94% specific, and it's non-invasive. If it turns yellow on the monitor, you send cultures. If it turns red on the monitor, you send cultures and start antibiotics because something bad's about to happen. And I know that sounds like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but it's coming. That day is probably coming, right? We're going to get whole exome sequencing on admission, and then we're going to put them on the septa check, and that's going to be that, and we're all going to have to go find other things to do. Yeah. <laughs> but transcutaneous um, uh, biomarkers is, is probably coming in the next 10 to 20 years. Okay, in the meantime, <laughs> what can we do? So real quickly through some of these topics, I know we're going fast, narrower agents. My favorite um, topic of all is getting rid of vancomycin. Um, so vancomycin is uh, really, really um, being recorded, so let me not use my normal curse words. It's a really crummy antimicrobial. We found it in the dirt in the 1960s, and somehow it's still our best option in certain situations, and that's depressing. Right. There are two situations, here's my Scylla and Charybdis shout out for all you Greek fans. Uh, there's two situations where we sort of are stuck using it in the NICU, and that's MRSA and coagulase negative staphylococcus. Those are two things we don't have good other options for at the moment. Okay. MRSA, very low birth weight infants do get colonized with MRSA. The incidence has increased, certainly, for all of our centers, but it varies widely. If you go to Tennessee, if you go to, um, to Nashville, it might be 80 or 90 percent of their staph isolates. If you go to Seattle, it's like 20%. If you go to Baltimore, it's 5%. So it varies like crazy all over the country. The average in the United States, according to Andy Shane and the, and the uh, Neonatal Research Network, is about 75-25, or about 72-28, but I'm going to go 75-25. That's almost exactly what it is in San Antonio. So our ratio is 75-25 as well. And it's important to note that there's no difference in pathogenesis between MRSA and MSSA. They are equally aggressive bacteria. MRSA is not worse. MSSA is bad, too. The reason it seems worse is we're stuck using Bank for MRSA. It's not a very good drug. Um, this has been shown a couple of times. Uh, Andy Shane did it first, and then Erickson did it uh, with the Mednax database and showed the exact same thing. Same ratio because the NIH and Mednax cover the same uh, regions in the United States, which, which is to say almost all of it. Um, and there's no difference in mortality between MSSA and MRSA. The good news is, is that we generally are pretty good at identifying who's got MRSA. So, so if you screen, and the, the, the formal recommendation from the CDC is, is, is about to be out. So the formal recommendation is that everybody should be screening. Somewhere between one to four weeks you should screen. We do it every week, which is a lot of money, but it's great. Most units do it every two weeks or every four weeks. If you screen, even in highly endemic units, 
91% of birth infections occur in babies who are known to be colonized. In lower, uh, lower um, prevalent units, it's closer to 94, 95%. In our unit, up until last week, it was 99%, and now we dropped down to 94% because we had a little mini cluster that we just talked about. But your nine out of 10 babies you can identify with nasal swabs, and you can reserve vancomycin for those babies. This is why we're all scared of MRSA. If we don't start bank for those kids, the 30-day mortality is twice as high as it is if we do start vancomycin. So you're stuck having to use bank for these kids, and if you don't start it promptly, MRSA has the weapons to be really bad. However, MRSA, uh, MSSA, you've got to start oxacillin or cefazolin or nafcillin. If you start vancomycin for MSSA, your mortality is going to go up as well because vancomycin is a terrible drug. And so it's not good for MSSA. There are two, one, uh, well, there's a lot of in vitro studies, one of which is up here, but there are two clinical studies that show that the mortality from MSSA is lower if you start a beta-lactam. So if you start oxacillin, nafcillin, cefazolin, you're going to be, um, you know, 30, 40% more likely to survive than if you start vancomycin. Part of that is vancomycin is really slowly cital. Part of it is getting the dosing levels right. Part of it is how effective beta-lactams are. That's true in babies, too. The other example is, is coagulase negative staph, where we have to use vancomycin. But here's the good news about coagulase negative staph. It doesn't kill you. Right? So coagulase negative staph in all these studies, Danny Benjamin from Duke, Barbara Stoll, uh, who was at Emory at the time and now is running California, I think, uh, was formerly Texas A&M. Me again, Jean-Baptiste in Paris, uh, Oscar, no, Oscar Isaacs, <laughs> he's an actor, Isaacs in, in New York, Ray Sai. Um, looking at all these different NICU populations, None of these um, odds ratios favor mortality from coagulase-negative staph. So a lot of these studies compared coagulase-negative staph to no infection, and you can see that there's no difference. This is actually my favorite one right here. Jean-Baptiste only looked at late-onset sepsis. And when you only look at late-onset sepsis, cons infection is actually protected, right? Because if you survive long enough to get cons, you've already outlived some of the other NICU babies. So there it's actually a risk factor for survival. It's predictive of survival, which I really like that study. These two were brave enough to use coagulase negative staph as the reference, right? They were, they were confident enough that it was not a pathogen to call it the reference and compare it to pseudomonas and candida and staph and some of the things that do kill you. So the point is, cons is not associated with mortality. You have time to figure out if it's real or not. Um, there's no survival benefit to empiric vancomycin for cons. Uh, this is the big one, Karlovich in, in pediatrics 20 years ago. They did a 10-year, basically, a thought experiment about whether they could get away from vancomycin. And what they found was that there was no difference in how much cons they were seeing. There was no difference in how big of a problem cons was, but there was a significant difference in how much bank they had to use when they waited to make sure it was real before they treated it. And Erickson, again, at all, this is Vendax again, um, 4,364 infants with proven concepts, this meaning two or more positive cultures. So not like a one and a maybe, but two positive cultures. Delaying vancomycin was not in any way associated with mortality, early or late onset mortality. And what they found was that if you started vanc early, you were trading two extra days of vancomycin for one extra day of positive blood cultures and no difference in clinical outcomes. So these studies all paved the way for Elizabeth Chu and I uh, shouldn't have started that sentence when I couldn't finish it. Ian, Ian Michaelo at Brown, uh, and they did this. They were the first ones to sort of do it for real, where they intentionally transitioned from vancomycin to nafcillin or oxacillin. They did this at Harvard, Brigham and Women's, and Mass General. Um, and what they they do what we do in our unit, which is you can still use vanc if the infant's colonized with MRSA. 
if you have a gram-positive organ, organism recovered and you don't have an identification yet, residents and fellows back in the dark ages, we used to have to wait a day or two for the lab to tell us what it was because we didn't have a PCR. It would pop up like an hour later and tell us that it was cons. I love, love, love that, um, that PCR more than I can express. It's like fourth in there behind my dog and my kids. Um, <laughs> Or if the infant is critical, right? So if you have an infant who's dying in front of you, by all means, use vancomycin. You can use vanc and oxacillin in that situation. We've done that. They did this, and they, oh, sorry, and it worked very well. Um, they, they had significant vancomycin reductions. They had no increase in mortality, no increase in morbidity, and they, they uh, had some uh, trend towards improvement in their outcomes for MSSA because they were using oxacillin and afcillin faster. Okay, so vanc. There are situations where you can do without vanc, I promise. Duration, I'm going to go quickly through this because these are all the exact same slide. Our treatment duration for neonatal infections is usually dogmatic. I can count on one hand the number of duration clinical trials that exist in neonatology. Right? So we used to do uh, you know, multiples of seven, multiples of five. Uh, Ten sounds like a good number. Let's do that. It's all made up. I promise you. Okay? Uh, this is Staph aureus bacteria. I'm going to go quickly through these because they all say the same thing. Staph aureus bacteremia, huge range in treatment variation. Obviously, this isn't a randomized control trial. No, no association between treatment duration, even as short as five days, and recurrence risk. This is not just in preterm neonates, but it's in, it's in infants. Uh, 128 infants with any bloodstream infection, randomized to seven versus 10 days, no difference in outcomes, no difference in recurrence. Uh, Miller et al., this is from Ohio State, we contributed data to this, 76 preterm infants with gram-negative sepsis, seven days to 28 days, no association between treatment duration and recurrence risk. And actually, the two treatment failures were both kids who got treated for forever, but it was because we couldn't take their central lines out, which is a known risk factor for treatment failure. Uh, here's another one from PZIDJ, uh, 113 infants with gram-negative sepsis, 10 versus 14, no difference. Uh, Chaudhary Journal of Tropical Pediatrics from 15 years ago, seven versus 14 days. This is, I don't normally include Journal of Tropical Pediatrics, but this is the biggest gap, seven versus 14, uh, in a randomized trial. No association between treatment duration and outcomes. Okay, your UTIs, we have even less data on UTIs, but UTIs, same thing. No association between IV treatment duration and recurrence risk in this study of babies less than 90 days old. No association between IV uh, treatment duration and these babies who had bacteremic UTIs, so they had urinary tract infection with a positive blood culture, no difference in outcomes. Um, very little data on total duration. So going to oral early and still treating for 14 days is not the same thing as five days versus 14 days. We don't have that data. Um, there are zero randomized control trials of total duration for urinary tract infection in, in neonates. And every residency group, I beg, beg, beg the residents to tackle neonatal UTI because we don't have any data on it, but uh, we don't know. Pneumonia. Pneumonia is really tricky because we don't even know what pneumonia is most of the time, right? Here's a baby with respiratory distress syndrome, probably, and here's a baby with pneumonia, probably. They look exactly the same to me, and radiology will hedge too. Um, the other problem is, where do we tend to get our pneumonia cultures? It's from up here. It's from the endotracheal tube or the, or the tracheal aspirate, and the upper airway is not sterile, so you're going to grow something every time you culture it. So we've got a million reasons for junky x-rays, we've got a non-sterile site we're swabbing, and we've got a patient population that has a million and one reasons for respiratory distress. So I kind of give up on pneumonia. It's really, really, really hard. Um, so all we can do is kind of cut back. If people decide they want to treat it, how, how short can we go? And I always do the example of someone kind of working their way blindly towards a cliff because there is a duration that is too short, I promise you. And we're going to find it the hard way if we're not careful. 
So uh, four days versus seven days has been pretty well studied. Um, this is four days versus seven days in this group in, uh, in uh, Mumbai. Treatment success was 100% for both. So there were no treatment failures in the four-day group. Here in the U.S., this is Bill Engel, um, not that one, the other one from South, uh, UT Southwestern. 73 infants with neonatal pneumonia who were healthy. So these are mostly term kids who were on room air and looking better at 48 hours. No difference in outcomes versus four versus seven. They all had good outcomes. Now, again, how many of them actually had pneumonia? I don't know. But they all were doing well four days versus seven days. But when they tried to run that same study back with two days versus four days, they did have some failures. So there is a duration that is too short. If it really is pneumonia, there is, an, there is a duration that is not sufficient to treat that. So we just got to kind of figure out what that is for all these different criteria. Neck. We have no randomized control trials for treatment duration of NEC. There are actually only three randomized control trials in the history of NEC, and they all looked at Clinda, which we don't even use most places. So AMP and GENT, with or without Clinda, was the original randomized control trial. And what you find is more survival with anaerobic coverage, but those survivors tend to have strictures, right? Presumably kids who would have died from anaerobic component that are now surviving with, with, with strictures. But there's no difference in duration. So absent clinical trials, everyone just kind of makes it up. And I think these numbers will be generally acceptable to most people in the room, but you can get so much heterogeneity across the country and across the world in neck treatment. You, you, you go to different centers and they're like, you use Zosin monotherapy for 10 days? You're, that's crazy. We use Amgen Flagyl for 14. And I, I, can't, I can't argue with them. That's an equally valid, there's, there's no randomized control data. Okay. That being said, the surgeons are on board with this. There's no evidence to support that treatment outcome or recurrence risk changes with longer treatment. So observationally, when we looked at short versus long, no difference. Again, that was a talk by Dr. J.B. Canty, who works at UT Health San Antonio and University Hospital as a neonatologist and also an infectious disease expert. In part two, I'll talk with Dr. Canty in the podcast studio about antibiotic stewardship for babies. Our website is pediatricsnowpodcast.com. Email me with episode ideas, questions, or comments. Thank you so much for listening. It is such an honor. Coming up next week, we will hear from an expert physician with more than 30 years of experience regarding breastfeeding. There's some great advice for your patients. That's next week on Pediatrics Now. We release a new episode each week. Don't forget to click on the link for free credit.